morning, Southbridge. What a great day to gather together. I'm so glad that you're here. I hope that you're glad you're here. If you're visiting with us this morning, if you're from out of town, you're visiting family, thanks for being here this summer, and we hope that you feel welcome. And Our mission is to make a big deal of Jesus through our song and through our fellowship, through the teaching of God's word. We want to connect people to Jesus for life change, and we hope that each week we gather together, we have an encounter, and, and all the small groups that meet together, they have an encounter with the Lord, and encourage and edify one another, and I feel like we could just shut down right now or just listen to uh, our, our instrumentalist play. Thank you, team. I hope that you've had a restful 4th of July, that you found some rest this week. Um, did anybody go to the Briar Creek Fireworks? Can you raise your hand? It's not like I can see you, but... I guess uh, we had a team that went uh, from Southbridge to the Briar Creek Fireworks and gave out refreshments and literature and invited people to Southbridge. And I want to thank any of those that are here this morning that were on that team. Thank you for doing that. My family, we were somewhat near the Briar Creek Fireworks. We were um, over by the H.H. Gregg, which is not really by here, the theater. But we could see them. We We took our five children with us. Yes, we have five. And uh, the Lord has been gracious to us. And we took our five little ones that want to see them but not always hear them. And we experienced working with our vowels. Ooh, ah, a, sometimes why. <laughs> and uh, it was good. My favorite ones are the new ones that um, come out like a, um, like a stream of light that dip. And they come like this. And it's like the apocalypse is happen- happening on you. It makes me think of Jesus. I like those ones. I like the ones that um, blow up a little too close to you. So you feel a little out of control, but then you really liked it. I don't care for the ones that, you know, blow up in your hands, but we had a really good time. This morning, we had the privilege of continuing in our series. Um, it's really the study of the book of Acts. We've called it um, Movement, and this morning, we're continuing on. We're moving on in these scriptures. Last week, we concluded with chapter, Acts chapter 9, and our lead pastor, Scott Lear, shared so wonderfully that God prepares people. He prepares people um, through other people. He prepares them through pain, and we saw in scripture that God was preparing his servant, Peter, to come to new places where he'd be uncomfortable with, but in the end, for the extent of the gospel. And this morning's passage is similar. It's like a setup passage, but there are significant things that we can learn from, be corrected by, encouraged, learn about culture, and learn about what God is doing and has done. We know that a key verse in this study has been Acts chapter 1 verse 8, which God tells his, his disciples that you're going to be my witnesses to the whole earth. So starting here with the Jews in Judea and then Samaria, Samaria with the people that are half enemies and then to the utter parts of the earth. Even our former enemies are going to hear the gospel. And what's happening through this book is that it's happening, <laughs> that God's plan is happening. And this morning, we have a special passage. Next week is the best part of the passage. If the Lord should bring next week to pass, please come so you can hear the best part. But there are some things for us to learn. So let's just dig in together right away here. Acts chapter 10, verse 1. Acts chapter 10, verse 1. Here we go. So we've been looking at Peter and how he's staying at this person's house called Simon the Tanner, someone that used to work with dead animals, which good Jews wouldn't do. But Simon's been reformed by the Lord and put in position there. And then Luke takes us to another place, Caesarea here. Look at verse 1 in chapter 10. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. Your translation might say cohort. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day at about 3 in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius, well, Cornelius stared at him in fear, which is a common response to angels. What is it, Lord? He asked. The angel answered, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon who was called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. So when the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. So we're setting a new stage here. The Lord is doing something unique. We see this encounter, this, this angelic encounter, and we're learning about a new person here in the book of Acts, uh, in a new city, a new location. Caesarea was the center of Roman administration in the province of Palestine. It's a real place that exists today. 
and it's a place that was populated by Jews and Gentiles, but there was actually beginning to be more Gentiles there because the Jews detested this place. There was even a temple there for Caesar. And so with the Roman occupation over all of the known world, um, there was constant encountering of the Romans, the the Gentiles, and the Jews, and this infiltration over um, the the Jewish people and their ways and their programs and their religion and how they did life. And so there was not um, any love toward the people of Caesarea, especially the Gentiles there. And in this place here, there's this man named Cornelius who is a Roman centurion, which means he's someone that's over 100 other men. This was a, a common role. It wasn't that high in military leadership. He's a military man with some responsibility. We know that the centurions did a lot of the grunt work. And here's a cool little um, observation from Scripture. You can just add this to your mind. Um, every time a centurion's mentioned, it seems that they're mentioned in a positive light. Isn't that interesting that God is doing something with these men in this role? So we have a a military man we're introduced here. And Cornelius is a Gentile, he's not a Jew. And that's important to know. The scriptures say that he was devout and God-fearing. Did you catch that? And these are terms that Jews would use of Gentiles who abandoned the worship of pagan gods to worship their God, the one true God. So for Cornelius, there there must likely have been some kind of progression for him. If he was a good Roman citizen, if he was a good Gentile that was under this regime and under the system, he probably was polytheistic. He believed in many gods. And if he was committed and grew up with a heritage like he most likely did, he would have believed and worshipped uh, many gods, the god Jupiter, Augustus, Mars, Venus. But there must have been some kind of progression because of the way that he's described here from polytheism then to monotheism, a belief in one god. Now there's lots of people that are monotheistic, They have a belief in a God, but it's not always the same God. There's lots of monotheists out there. But there must have been even more of a transition or progression in Cornelius' life because he would have gone just from a belief in that there is one God then then to a specific belief in the God of the Jews. The God who had separated the waters and had saved his own people from slavery and who had done miraculous things. And as Cornelius is at his post and is around these people, Somehow he was convicted in belief up to this point to be where he's at. Gentiles like this, if you didn't know, um, they would try, they would attempt to worship the local synagogue, which would have been like the local church there in the uh, Jewish religion, but there would have been a special place for them. The Gentiles would sit in a certain place and the devout Jews would sit in another place. And so they were not considered the same as other Jews. You can say that you worship our God, but you're still not the same as us. And here's the reason why, and this is important to know as the passage is setting up the amazing things that God is going to do to accomplish his vision and his mission, which we saw in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. This is important to know. The Jews hated the Gentiles. Now we've seen that the Lord has caused other Jews to come to know Christ, that Samaritans who were half Jewish and half hated, not liked very much, come to know Christ, and now something new is about to happen. This is important to appreciate because we want to gain an understanding of this text. And so I believe, when I look at the life of Cornelius, I believe that the Lord has been reaching and drawing Cornelius through his progression. And this is personal, and it's also strategic. And the Lord often works that way. He does something through one person's life, but it usually affects others, the ripple effect of blessing. Just like when we're participating in something wrong, when we sin, there's a ripple effect of that to other people. It's the same when we obey, and the Lord does this over and over again. As he uses people to encourage people and changes a life, there's a ripple effect of that, and it all goes for his glory, for his renown. And that's what's happening with Cornelius. God is leading him. He's calling him out of paganism, just like we saw with Abraham in the Old Testament. Abraham wasn't already Jewish. God called him and is leading him and pulling him, and we see this over and over again. And for anyone here that's a believer, it's the same with you. That is what the Lord did. He's calling you and drawing you. It wasn't your idea to come up up with it. He is first. He loved first. Then you loved him, 1 John tells us this. So Luke is showing us that Cornelius was a noble Gentile and was longing for the true God. And the only thing that was missing, though, was the most essential thing. Do you know what it is? He needed to know Christ. See, being a good and generous man is different than being made alive spiritually through Christ at salvation. In Acts, there are, have been, there's been a significant theme so far in these first 10 chapters. The theme is that it seems like the gospel gets its start amongst the most devout people, namely the Jews. 
And Jesus Christ has made it clear in the Gospels, we see he made it clear that devoutness and works of righteousness and being a kind person, a noble person, someone that does good for others, and religious sincerity and being sincere of heart does not solve our problem. So what is our problem, loved ones? Do you know? Sin. Sin separates us from God because he's holy. And that's why we need a savior because we can't save ourselves. We can't work ourselves back to perfection. I'm not a math genius, but if you miss one on a quiz, you can never get back to 100%, is that right? Unless you somehow grade grub and try to get extra credit from the teacher. How is it possible today, by the way, this just came to my mind, that students have like 6.0 GPAs. Back when I was there, we were struggling to get four. Some of us struggling to get to 2.5. Just so you know, I have a B average in my Bible comprehensive degree, so you're only getting 83% of the truth today. A great issue of insecurity in an area that prides itself in academia. So figure out which 17% we're missing. Same jokes. So Cornelius needs Christ because goodness is not godliness. Even though he's a good man, good things are coming from this person. So the only hope for Cornelius then is to believe on Jesus, and that's true today. And think about Cornelius' life and think about the advantage we have today in 2013. Cornelius didn't have the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, who's writing the book of Acts, and John. And those that were part of the church, those that were Jewish converts now to Christ, would never have reached out to Gentiles because they detested them. So what missionaries would ever reach out to someone like Cornelius? The answer is non-missionaries. Is that bad grammar? Hmm. So what is, what's going to happen with him? What, what hope is there then for Cornelius who is growing sensitive to God but doesn't know Christ? He's growing sensitive to God's leading but is in need of Christ. What hope is there for him? Here's the answer. The Lord is his hope. The Lord is at, is at work and he is going to accomplish his mission which is that the world would come to hear about him because Christ came to give his life as a ransom for many, not just a select people, so that whoever would believe in him would not perish eternally separated from God, but would know everlasting life with Christ, which begins now, not just heaven someday. So God sends this angel to Cornelius because there's no other way that Cornelius is going to come to know the Lord. God sends an angel to Cornelius around 3 p.m., and the angel told him to send for Peter to hear what Peter has to say. And what do you think Peter might have to say? The answer is the gospel. <laughs> There's no mention, though, that Cornelius knows what will happen when Peter arrives or that Peter will greet him or welcome him or condemn him. There's nothing. We don't see anything here about this. He only needs to meet with him. That's all we see. So what does Cornelius do? Did you catch it? He obeys. So here's a principle to remember, a few principles today, that we can look at this scripture and apply it to our lives. The scriptures are applicable to our lives today. Here's a principle. God prepares people to receive the gospel. He works in his ways to mold and shape a heart and turn a heart that was a heart of stone. The scriptures describe us before Christ as enemies of God, objects of wrath. He can turn a heart, and that's what he does, and then align and point someone to share the gospel or hear the gospel or send an angel or give a vision, as we see in scripture over and over again, and that heart can only say yes. That's what he does. That's how awesome he is. <laughs> and that's what we see beginning to happen. And if you come back next week, you'll see more. So God prepares people to receive the gospel. And I believe this is true today. How do I know this is true today? Because it seems as though weekly there are people here at Southbridge when we preach the gospel that say, today I've trusted Christ as my Savior. There are reports weekly from the membership of Southbridge as they share the gospel in their spheres of influence where they say, I saw someone say, yes, I want to know Christ. It's happening, and he prepares, the Lord prepares these hearts. People had no plan they were going to go to Target, and they decided to come to the theater for some reason, and they say, I need this Christ. This happens over and over again. The Lord is still doing this, and we can see how God is orchestrating all this by reading further. Look at verse 9. So we've learned about Cornelius, and then the author of Acts takes us to uh, another segment here, but it's related to the story. It's linked here. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. So back to Peter, who was at Simon the Tanner's house. He became hungry and wanted something to eat, and while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. 
He saw heaven open and something like a large sheep being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles of the earth and birds of the air. And then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Now, whenever you have the opportunity to share the gospel or talk about the Bible with people, it's okay to tell other people when passages are weird. <laughs> Agree with them. Yes, this is weird. This is unique. This is one of a kind. What is happening here? How does this fit with how God is orchestrating and preparing people to hear the gospel and share the gospel? Well, we have some learning to do. Around lunchtime the next day here, the day after Cornelius receives this message from an angel of the Lord, we see that Peter begins to pray, which would have been a subsequent time from devout, when, when de- devout Jews would pray at lunchtime. This would be his own time. He's up on the rooftop by himself, praying and wall on the rooftop. Some of the people in the house are preparing a meal, and he smells that he's starting to get hungry because it's lunchtime. And while in prayer, the Lord does something supernatural. The Bible tells us that Peter fell into um, a trance, and that word means this, like an ecstasy came upon him. He, he passed out of himself. This is not common in Scripture. And while in this, while being passive itself, he catches a vision So we have an idea here that it's not a a literal thing, but something that comes into his mind, comes before his eyes like he can see it. And he experiences this strange sight as we see in verse 11. A huge picnic blanket comes down from heaven and falls before him, containing seemingly every living creature. This reminds me of some of the church potlucks I grew up with. (laughs) Let's just talk about that for one moment. When there's church potlucks, excuse me, if you don't feel comfortable with the word luck, I'll say providence. When there's pot providences, <laughs> please don't be the person to bring jello with vegetables inside it. Instead of Cool Whip on top, you put mayonnaise on top. We are not interested, for those of us that, have a, that mayonnaise is a, our kryptonite, okay? Please be the person that brings KFC. That's who we want. <laughs> Banana pudding's fine. Sauerkraut is wrong. Is a sin against the Lord and men. But here's the deal. So Peter's hungry. He catches this vision, and it's weird. Everything's on it. For those of you that have some fears of snakes, they're on this because it says reptiles on it, every kind. And this is rough. This is a rough vision. And then the Lord says, and we believe it's Jesus Christ because Luke indicates that it's the voice of the Lord, and your Bible might have it in red lettering, which would say this is Jesus' voice, and Peter would have known Christ's voice. What is the command? Kill and eat. No, thank you. I don't want to get my hands messy. No. And so here's why it's really tough. You need to know that this vision is not only unique and strange, but would most likely cause great concern for Peter in his mind. Because we know that God gave his people hundreds of laws. You can read about them in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, and specifically the book of Leviticus shares a lot about God's laws. So if you have friends that practice Judaism faithfully, or if you went to Israel and met ultra-Orthodox Jews, you'd see them practicing some of those laws and the laws they added to that law. In some of these laws... We're around the idea of food, and you can read about that in Leviticus chapter 11. But the law was given for many purposes. One was for protection for God's people. One was for separation to make them unique amongst all peoples on the earth. And a significant reason was that it would cause them to have dependence on God's grace and mercy because no one could follow all the law. Everyone falls short of the law. And that's the evidence that we are sinners. That proves that we're sinners in need of saving So food laws were one way to keep Israelites, God's people, separate from pagan people because if they can't socialize and have meals together, they they won't be together. Now, every time you see God's people move into a land and they're around people that worship other gods or false gods, paganism, they really struggle with separating themselves from them. And God keeps trying to separate them and cut them out as a unique people and they keep trying to merge together, but they always fall in love with the pagan gods. Even the Lord saved them from slavery, provides for them in the desert. It's not good enough. They can see what he's done with their own eyes. They want something else. And we can see evidence of of these kinds of worship all throughout Israel today if you go. You can look at Canaanite temples of worship and their sacrifices and God's people participated with them over and over and over again. So even the law wasn't good enough to separate them. But here we have this vision where it seems as though God is telling, Jesus is telling Peter to violate the law that he's been following his whole life a law that would help him not socialize with the unclean people because on this picnic table are unclean things. And food can be a dividing thing, can it? 
I have a friend um, here from Southbridge. He was a part of our church from the beginning. He and his wife, uh, he works for John Deere, and they recently moved a few years ago to China. And every once in a while, because he knows that I have food issues, uh, he sends me pictures of the things that he has to eat as a representative of John Deere as he's making connections with people. Things such as, like, um, fried scorpion. <laughs> Do you eat the poison or not? I, I'm confused. It's, it's, uh, it's interesting how we get offended and we can look at nationalities and the food they like and make fun of it or not like it or say it's gross. Our worship pastor likes Moe's. I'm against it because I don't think that's real meat. I like Chipotle. <laughs> I do like the robot Coke device that you can say, hey, I want this to be, you know, money flavored and it tastes like that or whatever. But food can be divisive and it was divisive in this time and it's the same today. We have our own rules of what we're comfortable with, uncomfortable with. And some of us mix it in with our religion and others of us don't. And people, uh, Peter, we need to know that Peter had been reared then as a child not to eat the things that God's law said were unclean. Not to eat the things that God's law had forbidden. How could something that was unclean for thousands of years, the reptiles that are on this sheet, or the four-footed animals that were unclean on this sheet, now be considered clean? And we need to understand this, and it's hard for those of us that don't have any heritage like this. We understand that for God's people, these laws were for them like an identity. It wasn't about nutrition and wanting to be a better fit person. It was significantly about them being a unique people, the idea of kosher then. So what is Peter going to do? This is a strange vision and one that makes him very uncomfortable And I want to look at the next verse, but just the first part of the next verse, and then we'll look at the second part. There's much to be learned from it. What is Peter going to do? The Bible tells us. Verse 14, you ready? His answer to Jesus, his Savior, is this. Surely not, Lord. Your translation might say this. No, Lord. Now let's pause for a minute, because this is the one for me that really kind of busted me up in the last couple weeks. It's like saying this. No, master, no savior of my life, no Lord of all creation. Isn't that a contradiction? No to the master. It doesn't work, does it? And yet we face the sinning over and over again. And the Lord gives us commands to forgive the seemingly unforgivable, which he'll give us the capacity to do. No, God. I want you to be willing to go anywhere, anytime, to anyone, no, no, Lord. Like closing your mouth with someone trying to serve us, sauerkraut, mm-mm. Nope, nope, not interested. Isn't there a contradiction here? Do you see it? Are you, are you holding on to it? Isn't it confrontational for us? No, Lord, is his response. Amazing. There are examples of contradictions in our life, aren't there? Deafening silence would be one. An irregular pattern. Alone in a crowd. No Lord. See, there's contradictions in the Christian life where we say Jesus Christ is our Lord, our Savior, he's our master, we'll follow him. And then he says, I want you to love this person that's being unlovely. No Lord. As if love is a suggestion from God. Actually, it's a command. So is forgiveness. I want you to honor these people that God has set in front of you, your authority, your spiritual authority, or your employer, or government. No, Lord. Not that. Jesus says, for those that love him, obey him. So what we do is we change the definition of love to this. I say I love Jesus, but what that means is I like what he does for me, which makes it possible for me not to obey him then. That's what I meant by love. I just like what he does. How can we call Jesus Lord and yet refuse to do the, the commands that he gives us? What possible reasons could we give to justify disobedience? No, Lord. And we still say Lord. Well, we need to ask a question then. Why is Peter saying no? Why do you say no to him? The scriptures give us the answer in the next part. So verse 14b. I have never eaten anything pure or unclean. Peter is saying, no, why? The text tells us, because he's never done it before. I won't do this. I've never done it before. How can I do something like this? This is is so unusual, untraditional, not in tune with customer regulation. I thought that you had declared these things this way. Now you're doing something different. No, no, I've never done it before. Have you faced that before? 
Sometimes doing something new is difficult because we're afraid, isn't it? Even if God is telling us to do it. I remember the first time I ever preached, I was a freshman in high school, and it was in the subway system of Chicago. I could barely remember John 3.16, which seems to be a basic verse for those that are in Christ Jesus, and my friends helped me get through it, and my message lasted about four minutes. It was very uncomfortable. Still, I'm uncomfortable. No, Lord, no, I can't, I can't do it. But these people have no hope, Jason, and we want you to do it. Mm-mm. No, I don't like that food. Peter's saying no because he's never done it. On July 4th, my oldest daughter, Mia, has been battling the idea of riding a bike. And when I was growing up in the 70s and 80s, you got on a bike at, what, age two? <laughs> and you're supposed to play outside all day. And forget about helmets, just walk it off. Okay? <laughs> but I'm bleeding out of my ears. It's okay, just walk it off. Go play kick the can. Does anyone remember those games? Okay. Didn't we play outside all day? Yeah. Gee. Well, Mia has struggled. And it's, why is there a struggle, loved ones? Why is there a struggle to learn how to ride a bike? Can you give me some answers? We're afraid. We've never done it. I don't want to get hurt. And can you get hurt? Yeah, yeah. And so she learned. She actually learned quicker than she thought she would have and with less effort and sweating from me than I ever thought it would be. (laughs) My in-laws were here, so her grandparents got to see it. My wife got to see all her siblings. She keeps calling me outside to see what she can do. But what happened that she became willing? I think the desire to experience whatever it was on the other side of that was greater than the fear. Isn't that right? And Peter is afraid. He's got to be afraid because it's such a weird command. Peter desires to obey the Lord. We know this from his past, but we also know that multiple times, at least three times in the Gospels, he says no to the Lord. So this is normal for him, just as it is for you and for me. We say no. It's such an unusual request, seemingly breaking God's law. How can this be? Is it breaking God's law, he would think, or, is, or can the Spirit of God entire, f- fulfill the entire law through a kind of a obedience here? Can he fulfill God's purposes by me doing something new? What is, what's happening here? He's got to be confused. And there's a principle here for us, isn't it? A question to ask. How often do we say no to God because he's commanding us to do something that we've never done before or that we're uncomfortable with? We're not not sure the outcome or the reason why God's asking us to do something. When have you had to make a choice of doing something that you're uncomfortable with because it's God's will? So I'll give you an example from my life. And it uh, was last summer, and I was taking uh, my car into the shop. And let me just say this. I think um, state inspections are a scam because if they say, hey, Jason, you need to know who's it, what's it, and it's $1,000, I'll go, okay. <laughs> Whatever you say you need to do, I'll do. And so uh, I don't like depreciating assets like a car. But I had to take the car in. And usually when we take it in, I call a friend to come pick me up and take me to the office. But for some reason... Right when I was turning the keys in and I was going to turn to make a call, I just felt compelled that I ought not make the call to a friend. And I needed to um, make my way home because my wife, who works with Amazing Grace Adoptions, had a home study due uh, for a couple that was seeking to adopt a child. And I needed to be home by two. And my house was um, like six miles from this place. And um, I'm not a very fit person to make such a walk. And I knew that I was supposed to walk. And I actually remember I said, Lord, do you want me to make this walk? And I didn't, he, he, the clouds didn't open up. He didn't lay out sauerkraut before me and say, eat this. And he didn't do that. But it was just like, I want you to start walking. So it was last summer. I don't know if you remember. It was about 608 degree, 609 degrees. <laughs> and I had a backpack on. And so I started walking up Westgate Road and then turned right onto Glenwood heading toward Briar Creek where you come to the intersection with the world's longest light. That one right there. I've never gotten it green. If you have, you are blessed of the Lord. (laughs) So I started walking, and I'm thinking, why am I doing this? I had to walk on the underpass. I mean, I have cars going by me 70 miles an hour, and I'm thinking, this isn't safe or right. Why am I doing this? It's so strange. I got to get home to Amanda. (laughs) She's going to be upset with me, what I'm going to say. I just decided to walk. I just decided my new fitness plan is walking in the heat. (laughs) But I didn't call her, and... So I eventually make my way up to the intersection and there's a woman there that's asking for, for help, for money. And then I saw her and I knew I'm supposed to give her whatever's in my wallet, which was about a million dollars. <laughs> we do very well. No, I think I had like $11 in there. And I said, here you go. And then 
I felt compelled that I should share the gospel with, with this person. Now for me, my opportunities to share the gospel are as many as I make them. Now one to a few hundred happens every once in a while for me, about 10 times a year. But one-on-one happens as often as I'll step forward and engage someone. And um, sometimes with being in the office, I usually meet with believers and I usually meet with people when things are bad. That's my, one of my jobs. And I love to do it. So every once in a while I go for a while without having, making an opportunity or seeing an opportunity. So I laid it out. I said, this is all I have to give you, but I have more to give you. And I want you to know that God gave his son for you. And I don't know what your beliefs are, but can I just share my story with you? And it was about a five-minute thing, how Jesus came into my life and saved me, changed me. I invited her to our church, and I said, I don't know if you have family, but we offer some refreshments. At that time, we offered donuts, so I offered that. And uh, I don't know what happened to the rest, but I know I did my job. But I still had to get home. So I knew why God had me do that, but not to get home because then how do I explain to Amanda that I just decided to walk? So I make my way past there. I walk past um, the Goodwill, and right at that point when I walked by Goodwill to go up toward Glendale, and we lived in Durham at the time, Scott, our lead pastor, and his wife were just driving by. They picked me up and took the, way, the rest of the way home. So by coincidence. They didn't know I was there. They want to know, what are you doing? I said, I'm just going out for a walk. You know me. That's so like me. <laughs> so like me to walk around on the, on the pavement like this with my backpack. Do you have a towel? <laughs> I'll just rub myself on your seats. It was weird. I hope that I see this person in the kingdom. And I know I'm going there, not because I'm anything, but because Jesus is awesome. Has the Lord ever instructed you to do something? It's consistent with his word, the tenor of his word, his mission. But it's weird. What do we just say? No. We have one, there's one of two responses, right? No, Lord. Yes, Lord. So what happens as a result of Peter's rejection? Look at the Lord's grace to him. Look at verse 15 together. The voice spoke to him a second time, and my Bible has this in red lettering, which indicates it's Jesus' voice, so Peter's friend and Savior. Do not call anything impure what God has made clean. Verse 16. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. So it appears that it wasn't necessarily about eating these things, but there was some kind of teaching that was going on here. And I just love the Lord's grace. Why didn't you just say, you're not going to do what I want you to do? I'm done with you. Come home. That's it. I'm going to go talk to John. He's much more, he's much more kind. He's much more open-minded. Peter's got a history of saying no, and yet the Lord is so crazy gracious with him and leads him and wants to use him for the sake of others and for God's kingdom. And Jesus says, don't call unclean what God has made clean. Something new is happening here. It's okay, Jesus is saying. God decides what is clean and unclean, and he can do so as he wishes, right, loved ones? So he laid out a meal, this vision of a meal. He laid it out three times for Peter, and that's significant. We'll come back to that in a moment. But, but we need to know this, that the Lord knows what is clean and unclean. He'll decide. In fact, Jesus teaches about this, and you would think that Peter would remember. In Mark chapter 7, we read that Jesus was encountering people that were upset that Jesus' own followers weren't doing the ceremonial washings and were eating inappropriately and on the wrong day and doing everything wrong. And Jesus says to them that being unclean comes from within. For from within come our evil thoughts and passions and desires. Our uncleanliness comes from within, our actions, our motives, our heart, our thoughts, our fantasies, our desires of control, our desires to be Lord, to Lord over people, our desires to be in charge, to do what we want to do. That all comes from within, not about what we put into our mouths, not about if we wash our hands correctly. So Jesus is giving new teachings, and he's kind of turning the world upside down by telling them what the fullness of the law is really about. And Peter gets the same message. Don't call unclean what God has made clean. Here it is again. Here it is again, and then it goes away. So what is Peter going to do? Look at verse 17. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. So at the same time the vision's ending and Peter's thinking about it, the men that were sent by Cornelius, as instructed by the angel of the Lord, arrive to that place. They called out asking if Simon who was known as Peter, was staying there. Verse 19. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, and by Spirit we mean that's God's Spirit, who now dwells within Peter since Acts chapter 2, and it dwells with any of us today that have placed their faith in Jesus Christ as a promise by God. 
The Spirit says to Peter, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. The vision ends, and Peter is left in deep thought. The language here means this, to to be left at a complete loss on what road to take. Have you been there before? He was earnestly seeking to find out God's will. It wasn't between like his own will and God's will. Now he really wants to do what God wants him to do, but he's, he's so unsure. It's not clear for him. He's not getting it. He was in prayer. He believes that the Lord is directing, has given some instruction. We face the same opportunities. We have God's word, which we're so blessed to have in this time. Peter didn't have the same. He hadn't written some of it yet. <laughs> Have you been there before? You go through all this, you spend time in God's word, and we know that God engages in prayer, but you're still left wondering, what should I do? It's still unclear. That is exactly what Peter's experiencing in Joppa, a city that still exists today. I've seen it with my own eyes. It's real. And what we see is so gracious of the Lord is we see a principle for life here that God will make clear his plan in his time. And he will lead you as you desire to obey him. See, I think some people have a view of God's will that you have to turn over every rock to try to find him like he's playing hide-and-go-seek from us as if he doesn't want us to find him. That's not true. Whatever he commands you to do, he'll enable you to do. To forgive the unforgivable, he enables you to forgive. To love the unlovely, he enables you to do that. To obey, he enables you to do that. He wants to be known as you are known by him. He's not trying to hide from you, but he from time to time, reveals things, movement at the perfect time. And did you catch it, the timing? That's what he's done. So the principle to take here for us in 2013, even though this passage, this happened so long ago, but the Bible's applicable today, is that God prepares people for his plan and his time. And he does this both for Peter and Cornelius. How does he do this for Peter? We just read it. God makes it clear to Peter at the perfect time because while Peter is still pondering in the meaning of the vision on the rooftop of Joppa, three Gentiles from Cornelius knock on the door. And Peter doesn't have to guess who they are because the Spirit of the Lord tells them who they are. And we know that Peter had the vision three times with the unclean animals. And verse 19 says that God's Spirit told Peter that three men, Gentile men, ordinarily considered unclean, are at the door because he, the Lord, has sent them to Peter. Three visions, three men. Coincidence? I need to hear you say. No, no, no. What was confusing is now becoming clear, isn't it? The message for Peter is simply this. People that you have formerly regarded as common and unclean and with no hope of joining your fellowship are not to be viewed that way. So let's go a little bit deeper just for our learning. As believers here, this is important, even though we don't feel like this is our custom and culture about food stuff, I want to talk a little bit more about this. Many scholars believe that this vision has two meanings, a double meaning. The first being this, that God is abolishing the Old Testament dietary restrictions. I would say this, this passage could mean that, but there are better passages to showcase that. I believe that the dietary restrictions have been lifted, especially for Gentile Christians. This passage would not be the first one I would go to, and I'll share some with you in a minute. The second meaning, and for sure meaning of the vision, is this, that God has made unity possible in the church as both Jewish Christians, symbolized by the clean animals, and Gentile Christians, symbolized by the unclean animals, have come together. And it's possible through the sacrificial death and resurrection of Christ. The things that used to be barriers between two people groups have now been eradicated so that there can be oneness. Consider this instruction that Paul wrote to a church he helped plant in the city of Ephesus as it's made up of people from different backgrounds, Jewish and Gentile. Here's what he writes. For he himself is our peace, that's talking about Christ, who has made the two one and destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, Verse 15, by abolishing in his flesh, that's Christ speaking, the law with its commandments and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new man out of two, thus making peace. And in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross. Both need to be reconciled to God. Did you catch that? Not just one. By which he put to death their hostility. 
He came and preached peace to you who were far away, Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, Jews. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. This is huge. This is huge because there's a movement today telling Christians that they ought to follow the dietary restrictions. They would say that God saved you so that you'd become in his family, so that you'd become Jewish. But that's not the point. The point is that we'd become like Christ. That we would fulfill the law through loving him and loving others. The point isn't to become like a Jewish person. The point is to become like Christ, who grew up Jewish, but fulfilled the law and changed and moved and had people reconsider what the intent was. This is important for us to know in the world in which we live. It helps you have the wisdom to discern between what is the gospel and what is extra. So because of Jesus Christ, the barriers that would impede the gospel from going Jewish believers and into the Gentile world are now removed. God is doing something new here, starting to do something here new with these three guys that have been sent to Peter. And eventually as Peter goes to Cornelius, like we'll see next week. Gentiles would be saved through Christ just as Jewish believers are and we would be part of the church now without having to become Jews. That is huge. And now there is to be unity. The law separated people as God directed it to and now he's making a change. He's shifting things so that there would be unity. Brilliant by the Lord. Strategic by him. The law separated people but the body of Christ unites them because of our belief in Christ as the way, the truth, and the life. Therefore, the food laws then had to be removed so that Jews and Gentiles could come together for fellowship. Isn't that right? Doesn't that make sense then? Sadly, and this is something you may not know, we know in the Bible that in time, Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians in the church couldn't even eat together. This is what Paul has to address in Romans chapter 14, which would be a passage I would use about the eradication of these Laws. The Gentiles were abusing their privileges, as you can see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. The Jewish Christians were trying to make the Gentiles conform to the dietary laws. Even Peter struggled again with who he could eat with and what he could eat. And what happened is that persecution started happening within the church toward one another. This is a heavy, deep, personal thing, yet the Lord desires unity for those that have placed their faith in Christ. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, which is a letter written to a young pastor, we read that the author says that there will be false teachers who will come and they will teach you to abstain from foods which God has created to be received with thanksgiving. That's a text I would use. And verse 4 says this, for every creature of God is good and nothing is to be refused if it's received with thanksgiving. That's the scripture that we need to know. So what did Peter do? He has the vision. It's gross. It's uncomfortable. It's scary. Then he has the Spirit telling him, I want you to do these things. I want you to welcome people that you would never welcome. I want you to welcome people from a city you despise and of a people you despise. What's he going to do? Look at verse 21, and we'll close here. Peter went down and said to them, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, We have come from Cornelius the centurion, a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to have you come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. What is he going to say? Do you know already? Say it again. The gospel. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. And that's our text for the day. <laughs> he does what the Spirit tells him to do. Peter obeys. He welcomes the three men. Peter understands now that the vision is being ready to engage the Gentiles. The gospel is going to go forward into all people, and Peter, you're invited and commanded to be a part of it, just as you and I are commanded and invited to be a part of it. Including people who were once thought too far from the Lord. This is a remarkable shift for Peter, and one that he'll struggle with over and over again. So the last principle really for today is simply stated as God positions people to share the gospel he prepares people to receive it. He'll reveal his plan in his time, and then he positions people to share it. Giving, receiving. He prepares people to receive the gospel and positions people to share it. And God has been leading Peter, positioning him, stationing him closer and closer to the Gentiles. And we know that Peter's openness to change was fueled by his willingness to obey the Lord. That's huge. And being willing to do something he would have been very uncomfortable with, associating with those that didn't follow his customs so that they might come 
to know Christ. This is very Jesus of him, isn't it? Hanging out with the people that the religious people said were detestable. Jesus was accused of being a glutton and drunkard. If those are sins, which they are, he didn't do them, but he's around people that did them. Why? So they might come know the glory of the kingdom of God. The vision from Christ changed Peter's view of others. Who he would have been conditioned to hate, he was now welcoming. So let's ask ourselves a sobering question. Who have you been conditioned to hate? Maybe a more positive way to say the same question would be this. Do we view everyone outside of Jesus Christ as potential candidates for the kingdom? Because the truth is, sometimes we'd just rather spread our dietary laws on people. I want you to behave how I want you to behave. Then I'll share the good news of Jesus Christ with you. And that is not the great commission. That would be like the great comfort or something. When I'm comfortable with you, then I'll share. That is opposite of the mission and agenda that God has for all of his disciples. Heavy. So the truth is, honestly, if you or I withhold the gospel of Jesus Christ and the testimony of God's grace in our life from anyone for every reason, we are saying, no, Lord. But the truth is that when God's servants have a passion for obedience, it makes such people open to changes with which they may at first be uncomfortable, even reaching out to people that we are uncomfortable with. See, this vision for Peter applies to us today then, doesn't it, loved ones? Sometimes it's harder when you read scripture, you don't like, what is in there for me? There's plenty here, isn't there? It means that we should never deny anyone who God desires to reach through us. The gospel is not only for those that we deem worthy or we think that, we're, that are morally in tune with us already, so they're halfway there. Halfway there is not there. And whenever, wherever God places us, that's where we need to share the gospel. He strategically placed you in the Barrier Creek area or if you're visiting from somewhere else, wherever you are, that's where he's placed you by his sovereignty, that characteristic of the Lord that we sing about almost every week. It's not by coincidence. It's by his providence. So let's just do some self-evaluation as we close. Who in your life needs to hear of Jesus Christ and all that he's done? If you don't know of anyone, what will be your plan to meet someone? Start walking on the highway. Weird, it was weird. See, the love and compassion of Christ was such where he saw, when he saw people, he saw them as um, abused and broken. And that word abused, the scripture has stronger words. I hesitate to use them. I'm someone who's been mistreated and left behind, if you will. And that's why Jesus would say that he saw them as a sheep without a shepherd. And so we too ought have the same kind of compassion. And didn't someone have compassion on you when they shared the gospel with you? They loved you enough to tell you the truth? Which is confrontational, isn't it? You're going the wrong way. The gospel is confrontational. But we love enough then to share and we don't hold it back from anyone. Someone had compassion on you when they obeyed the Lord's command to make disciples. So when Christians remember that they too, according to Ephesians chapter 2, were once dead spiritually, dead in sin, slaves to sin, were enemies of God, the Bible says, were without hope and without God, that's Ephesians chapter 2, 11 and 12, I believe, that we were objects of God's wrath, that's what the Bible says, it says that. When we remember this as Christians, that that was who we were, then we'll have compassion on others that have not tasted yet God's grace and mercy. Christians who remember God's grace and mercy aren't surprised then when spiritually dead people act spiritually dead and don't follow our laws and customs and moral code. People that have been made alive spiritually by Christ aren't offended anymore because I expect you to live that way. You don't know Christ. Let me share with you the cure. It's Christ. We were the same. 
Such were some of you, is what the Bible says. But God, who is rich in mercy, sent his son so that whoever would believe in him may not have to be eternally separated from God, but may know everlasting life. So proactively, Christians invite others to place their trust in Christ to be made alive spiritually and have new life, a new identity in Christ. That's all Ephesians 1 and 2. I challenge you to read it. Who does Jesus say you are when you're in his family? Chosen, redeemed, sealed, adopted, forgiven? Over and over again. And when we do that, that has nothing to do, does it? It has nothing to do with religious performance or that person's church heritage or that person's moral aptitude, whatever the equivalent of your food laws would be and how life ought to be lived. But when that person says yes to the gospel you share, their new identity is totally based on Jesus Christ and what he has done for them. That's what you have to share. That's what Peter's experienced and needed to be reminded of. And that's what God is doing until he returns. He is using believers to reach believers and he'll get involved as he needs to be so that many may come to know him. Now, the best story is yet to come. So I want you to come next week if you can. Let's pray. Lord, for this morning, thank you. Thank you for your word. Help us to grow in an understanding of it and would you give us the tenacity to apply it? Lord, give us friends, Christian friends that will help us apply it, that will challenge us, confront us because they love us. Lord, give us eyes to see others as you do, Lord. Lord, if, if there are people here like myself, uh, this week we have to repent, Lord, repent of withholding the gospel from people or repent of acting surprised when dead people act dead, when spiritually dead people act as objects of wrath. Lord, Lord, would you just give us a heart for people, a compassion for people, that we would so love the world, that we would give our own lives for another so that some might be saved. Lord, I pray for those that have, have shared and reported that they've never shared the gospel with anyone or have not shared with anyone in the last year or last six months. Lord, I pray for those that have longing, are longing to see others come to know you but have never experienced that. Lord, I, God, would you just give them, give them that. Lord, make us bold. Lord, help us to know how to be bold. Lord, help us to know what the gospel really is as opposed to making it about our customs and our laws and our moral code. Lord, help people know, help Christians really know what the gospel is so they can be best delivering on the great commission to go and make disciples. Lord, keep us from making disciples of our own moral code, but disciples unto you, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you for your patience with us, your long-suffering patience with us. Thank you for being slow to anger with us. Thank you for making your will and plan known in your time. Lord, would you now enable us to be obedient, though? Lord, would you keep us, would you help us to not say no, Lord, any longer? And that everything is a yes to you as it was a yes to us from you when you brought us into your family by your grace. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.